reliability. It's an important concept in all of our lives. It's best described by words like trustworthy, loyal, dependable, faithful, etc. And even though such, it's such an important concept to each of us, it's something that I think that we all take for granted. In fact, reliability is one of those characteristics that we insist upon in everything and in everybody else. But when it gets down to a personal level with us, when it's required of ourselves, somehow we get a little more flexible with it. Case in point, if your car started once every three tries in the winter, how long do you think it would be before you would find a new car? If your mail person skipped his delivery every Monday and Thursday, what would you say? Trustworthy? If your employee didn't come to work once or twice a month, would you say that he or she was a loyal employee? If your refrigerator stopped working for one or two days every now and then, would you shrug and say, well, it works most of the time? What if your water heater provided you with a nice cold shower six or eight times a month? Would you consider it dependable? In a tragic newspaper article I read some time ago, I came face to face with the reality of how important reliability is to us. A Canadian skydiver who had been in the business of relying on his parachutes for 20 to 25 years learned of the tragedy that happens when reliability fails. The 56-year-old jumper, who had just been featured on the cover of a Canadian publication, was among some 300 skydivers from around the United States and Canada attending an annual meet in Montana. He was one of four skydivers who jumped together at 12,000 feet. And he had done this many, many times, but this time, at over two miles above the earth, reliability bailed out. And as he reached to pull the cord, he probably never thought twice about what he had routinely done time and time again for the last 25 years. But this time, the chutes didn't open. No one knows why. No one knows how. They just didn't open. Reliability. It's an extremely important concept we expect it from our appliances, we expect it from our vehicles, and especially from parachutes. Doesn't God expect the same from us? If you failed to gather with your brothers and sisters to worship God two or three Sundays every month, would you expect to be called faithful? If you forgot to pray five out of seven or seven time, days a week, five out of the seven days you forgot to pray, and you never opened your Bible, if you never mentioned your faith to the people that you work with or live with, if you never got involved with meeting the needs of those around you, should you expect to be recognized as a loyal follower of Christ? Vance Havner once said, a wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all, right? There is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing. We expect faithfulness and reliability from other things, other people, yet we often view ourselves as volunteers in Christ's service rather than duty-bound. For a volunteer, what's the case? For a volunteer, 
almost anything seems acceptable, right? Reliability is, is almost like an option. It's optional. For a bond servant, however, who is duty-bound, faithfulness and reliability is a very high expectation. In our text today, Paul adds yet another element to the development of a Christ-like character. If you've joined us for the first time this Sunday, I want to inform you, we're working our way through the book of Philippians, one verse at a time. In the first 18 verses of Philippians chapter 2, Paul laid out the blueprint for the development of a Christ-like pattern of life. Following up in verses 19 to 30, he gives believers, the believers in Philippi, two concrete living examples of what he had just written about. Look at Philippians chapter 2 in your Bibles if you have them, and follow along with me as I read verses 19 to 30. Paul writes, but I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Timothy and Epaphroditus are living, breathing, recognizable models of what Paul's been writing about in chapter 2 so far. So far, Paul has said that people who exhibit a pattern of life that is Christ-like have a heart for unity. They have a mind of humility. They exercise responsibility. They exude integrity in their lives while all the time engaging in the ministry. There's the parachute. It's all packed up and ready to go, right? Not quite. There's still one more important concept that we better not take for granted, Paul says. What is it? The concept of reliability. Reliability. And Paul tells us that Timothy, his child in the faith, is a prime example of that. A Christ-like pattern of life, Paul says, exemplifies reliability. Now, would you consider yourself reliable, a reliable follower of Christ? Now, don't think that reliability is a concept reserved for the chosen few who happen to be leaders in the church. On the contrary, it's for every believer, Paul's indicating here. I think that's precisely why Paul uses Timothy as an example. We can relate to Timothy. 
He wasn't an apostle. He performed no miracles that we know of. Nothing's recorded. As a matter of fact, in in the concept that we get of Timothy, we find out he was kind of reserved and timid, kind of a shy guy. He didn't perform any miracles. He was just an ordinary guy with an extraordinary heart of commitment to Christ and to Paul. What Timothy had, we all can have if we want to take the time to develop it. That's the point. And there are a couple of things here in verses 19 to 24. This week, we're going to look at Timothy. Next week, we'll, we'll unpack Epaphroditus' character. But in 19 to 24, these verses expose things about Timothy's reliable character that we can take note of. And the first thing is this. Reliability is accompanied most often by an attitude of loyalty. An attitude of loyalty. Look at verses 19 to 21 with me again. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare because they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy Paul says, or indicates, had an attitude of loyalty and concern, but it's wishful thinking to imagine that this attitude was something that suddenly and automatically appears in the life of a believer. To the contrary, it'll never happen unless it's observed and cultivated. And generally, that's accomplished through the modeling of good teachers. Timothy had a good teacher. And we get a glimpse of that right here. The Apostle Paul was immensely concerned over the spiritual condition of the church at Philippi. That's why he's writing this letter. Even while he's in prison, Paul's thoughts were primarily about this church, primarily about others, not about himself. You kind of want to rely on a guy like that, don't you? Right? Even when he's in prison, he's concerned about you. That is distinctly a Christ-like trait, isn't it? When Jesus hung on the cross, his primary concern was for who? It wasn't for himself, was it? It was for others. With his dying words, Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In the midst of his own unimaginable suffering, he tuned his ear to the faithful confession of a murderous thief that hung beside him and infused him with eternal hope by promising him life in paradise with Jesus. In between forced and sporadic breaths, which were very difficult and forced as he hung on the cross, he managed to make provision and care for his own mother before he died. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus Christ took the sin of the world upon his shoulders and made a way for you and for me to be reconciled to God. Who was he thinking about? He wasn't thinking about himself. And Paul learned that from Christ. Paul had that same kind of an attitude. Where do you think he got it from? He got it from Jesus. He got it from the Lord. 
the ground and foundation of Paul's ministry is right here in verse 19 in the first part of the verse. Paul says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. His hope in Christ influenced his every thought, his every activity. And it's no surprise then that Paul would want someone that shared that same philosophy of ministry to take over for him in his absence. So he sent Timothy. And as near as we can tell, Timothy lived up to his given name. Timothy means one who honors God. Honoring God. His name is mentioned 24 times in the New Testament, and from those contexts, we can paint a little bit of a portrait of Timothy's character, and that character ends up spelling reliability. Follow with me in a few verses of Scripture. The first element that we see about Timothy is that he was dependable. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 4, and verse 17. Look at what it says. It says, for this reason, Paul's writing, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. This is Paul has confidence in Timothy. Shy as he may be, he's sending Timothy out because he knows he's going to get the job done. He is going to pass on the faith that Paul passed on to him. No question about it. First Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We catch another glimpse of Timothy's character. Chapter 3, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. He's all about the gospel. He's all about the people of God. Dependability. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 14, we read that there's another element that, that plays into this reliability trait of Timothy, and that is spiritual stability. Spiritual stability. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, Paul describes this. He says, you, however, Timothy, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of from whom you are, and knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. And Timothy did it. Why? Because he had the spiritual stability and the training to do it. Dependability, spiritual stability, and then there's this concept of loyalty. Philippians chapter 2 again in verse 22. Look at what Paul says about Timothy. But you know, Philippians, he says, you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. See, in spite of Timothy's youthfulness, he served Paul faithfully and reliably during Paul's second and third missionary journeys. And then there's another concept we learn about Timothy in Acts chapter 16 and verse 2, and it's integrity. Integrity. Chapter 16 and verse 2, we'll begin in verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, 
And a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And so they did. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. His reputation went before him in Paul's eyes. Integrity. Timothy's character was described by dependability, spiritual stability, loyalty, and integrity. Guess what? These are the qualities of a person's life which Satan is always trying to destroy, isn't he? In every one of us, he's trying to destroy these things. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever take the time or give the time to think about these character traits in your own life? You ever think about developing these things in your own life? Or do you just think maybe by osmosis they're going to rub off? Are they on your short list of things to submit to the Lord, the Lordship of Christ? For all that we can derive from the Scriptures, Timothy was a man of character. Amen? Paul wanted to send somebody reliable who was concerned for the cause of Christ and not all caught up in their own stuff. And out of all the Christians that were in Rome, Paul chose to send Timothy. And do you know why? Look at verse 20. You won't like it. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. This has to be one of the saddest statements in the New Testament. There must have been hundreds of Christians in Rome at this time. And if you read the book of Romans, Paul names at least 26 of them at the end of that letter. And yet not one of them, Paul says, was reliable enough in Paul's view to make the trip to Philippi who would be concerned for the church like Paul was concerned for them. Out of all those Christians in Rome, only Timothy, Paul says. Now, I'm sure that there were some legitimate excuses for some of them, but Paul makes the strong declaration here that there was no one, and that's sad to me. Literally, the grammar indicates not even one who was of equal soul to Timothy in their concern for the Philippian church. No one was really interested in the Philippian spiritual condition, Paul says. They were only interested in themselves. And I'm not just saying that as a matter of opinion. Look at verse 21. Paul says it. He says, for they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Sad. Sad statements. This is a major pastoral concern for not only Paul, but for all pastors throughout the course of history, right? For all churches. Most people are so busy with their own thing that they can't possibly squeeze in one more thing for Christ. It was characteristic of the Roman Christians in Paul's day, and it's characteristic of American Christians in our day. Is that right? We constantly are diverting our time and energy and money and concern away from the things that really matter, like evangelizing the lost, edifying the saints, and exalting the Lord. And we tend to become ingrown, 
interested in our own thing. I think we all need to regularly ask ourselves, myself included, which category do you fit into? I know I need to ask myself this on a regular basis. Because here's the raw reality, friends, the raw reality. At any given moment, we are either living in the spirit of Philippians 1.21 or we're living out Philippians 2.21. Right? Which one is it for us most of the time? You figure that out for you. Philippians 1.21 says, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.21 says... For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. We're either living in 121 or 221 at any given moment. I'll say like Matt Chandler says, pastor, he says Philippians 2 is mean. I don't know how else to sum it up except that it's mean. This is what I mean by mean. It goes after the heart. It violently goes after the heart of your faith. And it does, doesn't it? When we put that on the table like that, I mean, that, we're all done, right? Now, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest. And I fall into the same thing you do. I'm trying to be honest with myself and honest with you. Jesus said, you cannot worship two masters. You can't do both of those things at the same time. You can't serve two gods. And that's what this is. That's the dynamic play between Philippians 1.21 and Philippians 2.21. You and I are either serving Christ or we're serving ourselves. The old commentator, Alexander McLaren, made a statement that we ought to all take into consideration. This is what he said. He said, to live for self is death. To live for Jesus is the only life. Now, does this mean that I, I want you all to be in church and at Fayette Baptist Church all the time? No. Just the opposite. Paul didn't try to keep Timothy to himself, did he? He sent him out. He sent him out to do ministry. The attitude Paul is trying to get across here is one of concern for the welfare of others and not to be so bound up in ourselves. How many professing Christians sitting right here today would be willing, I have to be careful here, because this applies to me too, even in the church as a pastor, to leave your business or, or your home or your comfortable home and go someplace uncomfortable to answer God's call on your life if God has a call on your life? How many of you? How many excuses would you and I have when God taps you on the shoulder? And we say we want to follow Christ, but do we really want to follow Christ where Christ is going? Are we willing to follow him beyond the back door of our comfortable homes? That's tough. Jesus encountered these same attitudes, you know, in his day in Luke chapter 9. Turn to Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Luke chapter 9, verse 57 I know you're thinking, you're thinking, I don't want to turn to Luke chapter 9, 57. I don't want to read these words. Because then I'm culpable, right? Luke chapter 9, verse 57. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. We say that, don't we? We do. We sing it. That means we say it. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. Well, the father hadn't died. You know what he was saying, right? Just wait until my, 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 my father dies and, and when all that's all settled up, then I'll come. Right? Take my inheritance and I'll come follow you. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But for you, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another said to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, hey, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Jesus didn't, didn't coddle people, did he? It called this the me first mentality passage. Permit me first. Let me first. But first, before I follow you, Permit me to do this. And it plagues me as well as it plagues you. We've all got excuses. And the real question then is this. When are we available for Jesus? When are we available for Christ? And is it on our own terms or whenever and wherever he wants us? I just finished reading a book that was, I love the book. Highly recommend it to you. It's called Wild Goose Chase by Mark Batterson, a pastor down at National Community Church in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you what that that title comes from. The Celtic Christians had a name for the Holy Spirit that he writes that has always intrigued me. They called him Ah God Glass, which translated means the wild goose. He says, I love the imagery and the implications. The name hints at the mysterious nature of the Holy Spirit, much like a wild goose. The Spirit of God cannot be tracked or tamed. An element of danger and an air of unpredictability surround him. And while the name may sound a little sacrilegious at first earshot, I cannot think of a better description of what it's like to pursue the Spirit's leading through life than wild goose chase. I think the Celtic Christians were onto something, he says, that institutionalized Christianity has missed out on. He says, every wild goose chase starts with one small step of faith. By faith, for example, Abraham, when he he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham is the patron saint, he says, of wild goose chases. He had no idea where he was going, but he did not let that keep him in the cage. By faith, he ventured out into the unknown. He left behind his family, his home, and his assumptions. Amen? On the edge of medieval maps, cartographers used to inscribe the Latin phrase, terra incognita. Naysayers and doomsday Dayers believed that if you ventured far, out in, uh, far enough out into unknown territory, you would either fall off the edge of the flat earth, right, or run into two-headed dragons there. But that didn't keep a few brave souls from venturing into uncharted waters, did it? That's why we're here today. 
Christopher Columbus actually was trying to find a westward route to the Indies, something many experts assumed was impossible. But Columbus challenged the assumption and embarked on a wild goose chase. Columbus was no saint. In his own diary, though, this is what he confessed. Quote, I am a most unworthy sinner. But Columbus also stated that it wasn't intelligence, mathematics, or maps that made his voyage a success. Columbus credited the Holy Spirit with the idea, believe it or not. He credited the Holy Spirit. It was the Lord who put it into my mind, he wrote. I could feel his hand upon me. The fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures, unquote. Here is what impresses me the most about Columbus's voyage. Not one crew member had ever been more than 300 miles offshore. In one man's true words, people cannot discover new lands until they have the courage to lose sight of the shore, right? Folks, the wild goose is always calling us into terra incognita. He's always calling us there. You should read the book. It will inspire you. And I think for the most part, we've got too many worries in this life that are choking the spiritual life out of us and obstructing the blessings that Christ wants to give us when we follow the wild goose. Read Mark 4, chapter, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 again this week. Jesus warned in that passage this. He says, it's the distraction of worldly worries, the deceitfulness of worldly riches, and the desire for worldly pleasures that choke out the seeds of faith. Right? And all of these stem from being all wrapped up in our own self-interests that Paul talks about here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 21. Here's the deal. The thorns of self are squeezing out the seeds of faith in many people. And that's one of the most miserable inconsistencies for a lot of professing Christians. They've got the seed in, but they haven't got the thorns out. What interests are you predominantly seeking today, yours or those of Jesus Christ? That's the question that Paul's asking us. Paul wanted someone reliable to send to the Philippian church, someone who had an attitude of loyalty for his kingdom, and God wants the same thing in us. Second thing that marks Timothy's reliability here is a history of dependability. Look at verse 22 a history of dependability. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Someone once said that character is simply long habit continued. And that's the perfect summary of Paul's statement here. The word proven here means to be approved after some scrutinization. Timothy's worth to the ministry was absolutely proved through his long habit of service to Paul, even through the hard times. Paul's saying his character was tested and it was approved, and that's why I want to send him. Timothy was no novice, by the way. He was young, probably in his mid-30s, but he was not inexperienced. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 again, if you, uh, if you turn there. In verse 10, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. See, Timothy was right there with Paul through all of that. He was there at the founding of the Philippian church. They were personally acquainted with him, and he knew. They knew him as a man of God. They had seen him firsthand. They knew of his selfless attitude, and they also knew that he had the attitude of a servant. That word serve, by the way, means to serve as a slave in verse 22 of Philippians 2. Paul had identified him earlier in the first verse of Philippians 1 as a bondservant. Remember that? He served side by side with Paul, a slave of Christ whose only interest was to please his master. Remember back then when we preached, when I preached on that, I, I brought you to Exodus 21 and talked about the fact that a slave who wanted to stay with his master when he was free to go could choose to stay, but if he did so, he'd have to come up to the doorpost, put his ear there, and they would nail an awl right through his ear and pierce his ear. Remember that? Basically, metaphorically speaking, Timothy had placed his ear on the doorpost and said, pierce me. I'm going to follow Christ as you follow Christ, Paul. I'm going to serve. I read a quote once that said this, the highest reward for a man's toil is not what he gets for it, but rather what he becomes by it. It's a good quote. Timothy's character was tested by time and by trial. Paul did not put him into a place of responsibility right away. It took time, it took training, and it took testing. That's what God is in the business of doing with each one of you and with me. And you never stop that. God's always trying us and proving us and testing us and pushing us and stretching us and calling us to go further. Our part is to be faithful. Amen? So, if that's the business that God is in with you, our part is to be faithful in the small things and wait for God to supply more responsibility. Is that right? You want to be a reliable Christian that God will use like Timothy? Start small, be faithful. Start small, be faithful. Be Christ to the people in your own home, to your own neighbors. Concentrate on the people that you work with in your office. Cultivate a servant's attitude with them. Believe me, that's enough responsibility for anyone. I have known guys who, when they got into the ministry, they verbalized it. They wanted the big church with the big name and all kinds of disciples. And they wanted it fast. What a joke. You know what that is? That's birdbath theology. A mile wide and an inch deep. Destined for drying up. There are too many ministries with that kind of mindset, theology. The key is to focus on the depth of our Christian character and let God supply the breadth of our influence. Amen? My mentor, a wise man of God, one of the wisest I've known, once gave me a valuable piece of pastoral advice many, many, many years ago. 
Someone else had shared it with him early in his ministry. And now I share it with guys younger than me who I meet with and mentor. And I'll never forget this piece of advice. He said that the smallest church in the smallest town in the state of Maine is way more responsibility than you will ever want. And that is true. He was right. Listen, a reliable spiritual character is not the product of a Sunday morning sermon. It's not the result of a three-day seminar on discipleship. It isn't even the outcome of a year's worth of service in the church. It's something that grows deeper and wider as we seek the Lord diligently and as we yield to his will as a matter of long habit continued. Is that right? So the best place that you can be faithful is right where you are, right in your own home. You just let God supply anything else. Reliability is accompanied by an attitude of loyalty. It's marked by a history of dependability. And finally, Paul says, reliability results most often in an appointment to greater responsibility. Look at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, Paul says, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that myself also will be coming shortly. Paul resumes the thought that he began in verse 19. Verse 19 says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And then in verse 23, he repeats it. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. Timothy had proven his worth to Paul, and eventually he would have the privilege of being appointed to lead the church at Ephesus to proceed where Paul had left off. He was appointed to preach the gospel and to teach sound doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. You heard these a few weeks ago. These happen to be my life verses. I solemnly charge you, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction for the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And that time didn't wait. It happened immediately when Paul was writing these words. And it continues right on down to today. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Those were Timothy's marching orders. This is a quintessential example of the discipleship-making process that Paul is unveiling here. Paul brought Timothy through to the point where he could release him to start the process all over again with some other guys. It's called the ministry of multiplication, and we're all called to be doing it, no matter where we are. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. That, those are the verses. You therefore, my son, he says to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And you may be saying, well, well I'm not a pastor. I'm not going to do that. No, but you can do that with your kids. And they'll pass it on to their kids. And they'll pass it on to their kids. Amen? 
It can happen in your home. It can happen in your workplace. You pass it on to your fellow workers. Train them up and let them send them out to go pass it on to somebody else. It can happen anywhere. All it takes is spiritual reliability. Syndicated columnist and author Cal Thomas once put it this way in an interview. He said, there is nothing more powerful than the individual believer who is sold out to Christ, committed to his own family, her own neighborhood, his own school, and one's own environment. Nothing more powerful than that. Now, let me say, maybe you're the only Christian in your office, in your circle of friends, or even in your family. Quite possibly, you may be the only true believer in the local gathering that you call the so-called church if you're, living, if you're visiting with us here today, maybe. Rejoice. You're supremely valuable to God. They've got you. He's got you in that place for a reason, amen? God has appointed you to be there as a reliable servant of Christ, an ambassador for the gospel. The question is, will you prove to be reliable in that particular situation? In the same interview I referenced a moment ago, Cal Thomas related an example of a letter he got from an editor of a newspaper that started carrying his column. The editor wrote these words. He said, I'm so frustrated because I'm the only believer on the entire editorial staff. Cal wrote back and said this, quote, let's say that you weren't on the newspaper staff, but that you were a CIA operative plant in the Politburo of Soviet Union. This was a while ago, this interview. Would you be complaining that you were the only one there? No, you would be rejoicing that your government had placed you in such a strategic position. See, this is the attitude that we ought to have. God has placed us all in strategic positions no matter what our job is or even whether or not we're employed. God's got a purpose for you even if you're unemployed. God has a place, he has placed us where we are because we're valuable to his cause where we are. Amen? We need to stop complaining and start being, real, being a reliable tool in his hands. Isn't that exactly what Paul was? Isn't that what Paul was where he was in the prison where he wrote this letter under house arrest? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Far from being an obstacle to the spread of the gospel, Paul's being in prison actually advanced it. Why? Because he was faithful where he was. And far from whining about his arrest, he actually rejoiced in its unintended effect. He also knew that when that mission was finished, he would see Timothy and the Philippians again. Why? Because he had confidence in the reliability of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 shows us that. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. See, ultimate reliability is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We can trust him. He is the parachute that always opens and carries us to safety. Is that right? So I already told you, if you're a Christian, what Paul is saying we should be doing, right? Being faithful where you are. If you're not a Christian, 
if you're not depending on Christ for your eternal salvation, if you're depending upon your own means to make it safely to the beautiful side of eternity, then you, my friends, in all love, are like a skydiver hopelessly spinning out of control on a crash course with eternal death. You may be here today desperately pulling on your ripcord, thinking that maybe if you keep working at it, if you keep trying harder, if you pull faster, if you can figure it out in your head before you hit the ground that the chute's going to open, it's not going to open. The problem is that the chute itself has proven defective and unreliable. And that no amount of effort on your part will change that. See, you need to have something way more reliable than some desperate last-ditch human effort to get you safely to eternal life. Your reliance needs to be on something dependable, something sure, something stable, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 and 27. I'll leave you with this verse because it fits perfectly with this whole metaphor of the parachute. There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you, across the skies in majestic splendor. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. There's a parachute that will not fail, totally reliable.